Hello there and welcome to the Secrets of Organ Playing podcast. I'm your host, Vidas Pinkavichus. Today's guest is Dr. Matthias Schneider uh, from Greifswald University uh, and he's the president of Gesellschaft der Orgelfreunde uh, from Germany. And uh, he is today uh, going to share his insights and research uh, about the church music uh, in the Reformation time, basically in the 16th and 17th centuries in the areas around the Baltic Sea. I'm meeting him uh, at the uh, Vilnius University St. John Church and uh, he is visiting Vilnius for the conference uh, uh, where he is presenting basically his research so I'm very curious to find out what kind of music sounded in uh, Lutheran churches and what, what kind of liturgies went on in 16th and 17th century uh, basically the areas and time periods before Bach um, maybe 100 years before Bach middle of uh, 17th century and 16th century basically so it's very very fascinating subject and let's go now to the show Great, so welcome Matthias uh, to this wonderful uh, church. Uh, we're meeting uh, here um, just before your concert at the Vilnius University St. John's Church and um, uh, after your presentation at the um, uh, conference that was uh, organized by the Vilnius University Library called uh, um, uh, Reformatio Baltica, right? So can you talk a little bit uh, uh, what was the theme of your presentation? Uh, the theme of my presentation was the question how did organ music sound uh, after Reformation? What did the organists play during the services in liturgy? And what can we know from the sources? So I asked three, three uh, kinds of sources. Uh, starting with the church orders and the agendas, uh, but they don't say very much uh, after Reformation. Later they, they say more, but in the first uh, decades they say what organists not are allowed to play, but only seldom what they should play. And then second I uh, looked at um, the uh, documents about auditions when organists applied for a post of, of uh, church, uh, what they uh, were asked to play, a motet, uh, sometimes a transposed motet, uh, they should improvise a German psalm and uh, they should uh, be able to, to play in the uh, organo pleno and, and other things. Um, the third thing I presented here, and I think it's only a starting point for a bigger project where uh, we have to, to ask a lot of more sources, um, was two uh, big sources of, of organ music um, that uh, we know very good. Uh, the cell temperature from 1601, 
that is not uh, now preserved, but we have photocopies in Berlin and know the contents of uh, this source, and the WISP tablature. Uh, the WISP tablature I uh, investigated last year. I, I went to Gotland to, mm -hmm. to uh, look at this uh, source. And it's very interesting to find uh, a whole cycle of Magnificat uh, uh, by Hieronymus Pretorius and some more Magnificat by other composers, also his son Jakob Pretorius, and uh, a lot of liturgical organ music with this uh, by an anonymous. Um, there was one um, uh, musicologist uh, about 30 years ago who had the thesis that um, also these pieces are by Hieronymus Pretorius. And I'm not sure if this is right. I think uh, this could be like a book that an artist uh, makes with drawings. He sees a, a picture and he he uh, makes uh, a sketch uh, mm -hmm. what he has seen. And so I think this Bären Petri, who started writing the source, had the compositions by Pretorius, by Hieronymus and by Jakob, and then he made his own tries, what, in what kind, in what matter uh, one plays during the liturgy. But not to play these pieces one-to-one -one within the service, but to learn how to manage, how to improvise, how to get the right counterpoint to, to the cantus firmus. Uh, this is not, in my opinion, it's not music to be played as we do uh, today, but music as a starting point for his own improvisations. You, that is so fascinating idea you just um, uh, briefly uh, mentioned, uh, um, Matthias, because uh, I remember um, musicologist Ibo Ortegis talking about uh, uh, the idea that majority of these pieces written um, up to 1750 or even later were meant to be as models for composition and improvisation, not necessarily, as you say, for, uh, for performing in concerts, but, but just as models for people and students and later generations to learn, isn't it? Yes, uh, he's right, and there are some others who uh, agree with this. Uh -huh. um, we can see, for instance, that uh, the Magnificat have not the right number of uh, verses for alternatim praxis. So, uh, what uh, does the, the number of three or four verses mean? There are three or four different models, different models in counterpuntal technique, and the organist is the one who uh, chooses from these techniques uh, what he wants to play. Wonderful. And when you looked at, for example, at Visby tablature, did you have to read this new German tablature notation? Uh, yes, I did so. Wonderful. Um, there's one uh, curious thing that is not very common. Um, we have this only writer Bären Petri, and uh, he wrote this in his um, lessons uh, in Hamburg. And some decades later, we find the same source in Visby, where it is until today. But uh, some years ago, no one knew how it has come to uh, Visby. Um, and now a young uh, researcher, Beate Bugenhagen, has found out 
that this Bernd Petri later was organist at uh, St. Nikolai Church in Stralsund. And one of his pupils, David Herlitz, went from Stralsund to Visby and, uh, and became the organist of the cathedral. Mm -hmm. And I suppose there's one piece that is not Bernd Petri, but also not Jacob Pretorius, not Hieronymus Pretorius, uh, one later uh, written down piece on two, two empty uh, pages. And I suppose that this uh, piece is written by David Herlitz around 1620, perhaps. And I will play it tonight in the concert. Uh, it's also uh, uh, verses on the Magnificat, uh, a little bit more modern than the Hieronymus Pretorius Magnificat uh, verses uh, are, and uh, a kind of choral fantasia with three different measures of uh, the Cantus Firmus. Wonderful. So uh, let's remind our listeners uh, who are wondering about what is the new German tablature notation? How can you read it? What, what, uh, what are the features of it? Uh, first of all, <laughs> it needs very few space. Yeah. Uh, you write not as we do with the uh, partitional notation in a uh, type of coordinate system. Uh, Stave notation, right, with five, five lines? Yeah, but I, I think so, uh, as a uh, system, system, so you, you write, the, but you write with every tone uh, what it is. So you can write it like a, a novel. Uh -huh. <laughs> you write only A, B, C, and uh, you don't need more space for uh -huh. it. Um, if you have uh, written a little bit, it's not very difficult to, to uh, read. Perhaps a little bit uh, difficult to play after this. Uh, I don't do so, I, I uh, transcribe it, but you can read it very good. Uh, there are some mistakes in the transcriptions if it's not very clear what octave it is. Uh -huh. uh, that's not easy to read. There are uh, lines and you have to look very careful on it and sometimes there's missing a little bit of the paper and so so it's difficult. Uh -huh. So for example the note C would be notated as as the letter C right and the octave would be notated as the one line first yeah. octave two and the lines line is longer uh, for more stems uh, uh -huh. for, for more letters and uh, if the line goes under the octave uh, the line is broken and then it starts new afterwards and it's not every time clear uh, mm. how long it is. Not always so consistent, right? And uh, what about the rhythms then? Uh, how can rhythms be notated in such a uh, case? Over this line there is another line with uh, rhythm indications and they are very similar to our um, uh, signs of the um, uh, quarter notes and 16 notes, right? 16 notes and 8 notes, mm -hmm. these, these uh, lines uh, where they uh, are together. So fascinating, in 17th century, even in 16th century, people in Germany or German-speaking lands probably felt more at home with the new organ tablature notation than with the yes, stave notation, right? Yes, of course. And for a very long time, also from the later 18th century, we have uh, examples where organists, when they uh, shortly and very fast wanted to, to notice something, uh -huh. to sketch something, they, written, they have written in, in uh, tablature because it was very fast and it 
didn't need much space. Also uh, very famous, the, the Orgelbüchlein uh, by Bach. Uh, sometimes the pages were too small for a long choral and he uh, continued in tablature. So even in uh, what, it was 1710, 13 or even later, Bach, Johann Sebastian Bach knew this tablature notation and used it when the situation was needed, right? When he needed Yes, and we, we have to assume that he started learning by tablature because we have these copies uh -huh. from Buxtehude and Reinken uh, choral fantasias uh, from before 1700. So the very young 13 or 14 years old Bach copied uh, in tablature, in uh, North German tablature, uh, these pieces. And later he started writing in, in uh, partition. Wonderful. So let's let's return to our uh, uh, idea of uh, uh, what kind of uh, organ music was played in the uh, German Lutheran services in the 17th century. And you mentioned that Magnificat uh, probably were uh, played during uh, Vesper services, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, alternatim uh, with the chorale chant or, or the choir, polyphonic choir sometimes, right? Um, uh, what else was required? Yes, then the organist had to accompany the choir uh, in motets. I think also the big papal tablature mm -hmm. is uh, served for this purpose uh, to, to play the polychoral motets together with the choir, perhaps playing one choir only on the organ and the other was sung, uh, we don't know. And another thing is uh, to, to uh, take uh, some verses of the uh, uh, ordinarium uh -huh. uh, pieces. Um, I investigated in, in Vispu and Celle the Kyrie uh, and also the Gloria uh, uh, things. In Pomerania, uh, Gloria at the Gloria uh, beginning, the organist uh, was not allowed to play. Mm -hmm. On, only at the end, he, uh, they, they started with Gloria in Excelsis at Interra Parks, then they sang the hymn Allein Gott in der Höhe sei er, and afterwards, from Laudamus Te on, uh, Alternatim, the organist uh, was allowed to play. In Hamburg it was a little bit different. Uh, he played from the beginning uh, each second uh, verse. So the priest or the choir started Gloria and Excelsis and the Atintara was played on the organ. We can see this in Visby. Uh, in Celle we find six variations on Allein Gott in der Höhe sei er in very different mode. Um, one is uh, um, Choral that is a little bit uh, uh, broadened by the organist with uh, single lines that he inter. Uh, um, um, he brought. How, how do you say? They sing one line and then he plays one line and they sing the next. right? Uh, no, in, Not? within the choral in, in, in one one uh, verse. Mm, interesting technique. Uh, it's it's a uh, it's like. Uh, um, responsorium, no? Yeah, he, he made like an interlude. Interlude, uh, ah, he, interlude, he, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, he, uh, there are some verses, uh, there, there are one, there's one um, uh, chorale where he made uh, verses uh, like interludes. Uh, 
and others are like a choral fantasia. Mm -hmm. So uh, there must have been uh, occasions to play also longer uh, for one. And you mentioned this polychoral motets and the uh, organist was really required to accompany, right? And I've heard that uh, sometimes when choir was absent, organist uh, was required also to play the motet instead of the choir, to intabulate basically, intabulations. And we have these examples by Scheidemann, of course. Yeah. I think that was uh, a little bit later, in mm -hmm. the 17th century, not in the 16th. Uh -huh. um, we know from Hamburg that only one cantorai, one choir, was responsible for four churches, the four main yeah, churches. Yeah, yeah. And so they couldn't be everywhere. Uh -huh. uh, they, they sang every Sunday on, in one of these four churches, and the other three organists had to play, instead of the choir, a bigger motet or perhaps a choral fantasia. Uh -huh. uh, Scheidemann, Reinken, and, and these pieces, uh, uh, the, the bigger choral uh, bearbeitung, or also the Scheidemann moted uh, intabulations, uh, may have been for this purpose. Wonderful. And, and this Visbitalus, for example, is it connected with the Swelling school, or is it a, a little different? What do you think? In my opinion, the newest pieces, also these of uh, David Herlitz, but also the, the sketches, the, the pieces from Bernd Petri himself, uh -huh. uh, show a little bit influence of, um, of Jan Peterson Zwilling. It's not echo-technic, it's, it's not the late uh, Jan Peterson Zwilling, but as we realize, Jakob Pretorius had been uh, in Amsterdam before teaching Bernd Petri. Uh, it was not the most elaborated school that Scheidemann had ten years later. Mm -hmm. So I think Zwilling, when he had started teaching the German Hamburg uh, pupils, uh, started also elaborating his system. And the later music is very, uh, very uh, much more modern. Um, and uh, this is not to be seen in, in this piece. And when you read these um, uh, church orders, right, Kirchenagenden in German, uh, what do you um, uh, find about congregational singing in those days? For example, today, especially in the Lutheran world, we know that uh, congregational singing is worldwide, right? But, but what was in, in 17th century or even in the beginning of the Reformation? The beginning of the 16th century, um, it was very important for, for Bugenhagen, for instance, who wrote the, the Northern German uh, uh, church orders, that the congregation was able to learn the new songs. Mm -hmm. So the organist shouldn't play with them, it shouldn't uh, disturb the singing, mm -hmm. but the congregation should sing alternatim with the choir. So both choir and, and congregation learned the new uh, German psalms. And uh, the organist was allowed to make a prelude, sometimes an interlude, and at the, at the end he was uh, allowed to play once more. Uh -huh. um, but uh, he, he should not play verses, because they should sing all verses. Uh -huh. So basically, choir sang without the organ, you're saying? Yeah. Uh, sort of a cappella, right? And also a congregation a cappella. Yeah. That's a very radical idea for people without any special musical training to keep in tune and rhythm, yeah. right? I think that uh, singers from the choir uh, 
were the leading singers for the congregation. Ah. They sang with the congregation. Uh, and, that helps. Uh, that and helps. then uh, alternatim they sang uh, polychoral. Uh -huh. uh, so when people really are leaders, then then they can even mix with the congregation sometimes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. that helps really, and that helps. That has some some. Uh, uh, um, influence with today's world, right? Uh, sometimes people have this idea uh, of taking people from the choir and putting them uh, among uh, congregation yeah. to help them. We sing. have today, uh, for instance, in Denmark, the uh -huh. tradition that some singers uh, at the organ balcony uh, sing very loud the melody. Uh, together with the congregation to to get them in in the right uh, tone and to help them to learn the melodies. And uh, how about the tempo? I've heard that the tempo was rather slow. Yeah, yeah. Of the singing. It uh, seems to have been very slow, so that after every single line they had to breathe and mm -hmm. to start new. Uh, and uh, that was the point where later. Uh, around 1700, the organist started to make interludes mm -hmm. and uh, then to, to uh, get the parish and the congregation back to the right tone. But not every congregation liked those interludes, right? That's Remember right. the story about Bach yeah. going to Lübeck to learn uh, with, with Buxta and coming back after three or four months and then playing those wild sounding interludes and uh, the people were saying, what is going on? We don't want this. They didn't know when to start the new line, basically, because of these yeah, uh, improvisations, yeah. right? There were diminished uh, uh, accords, and, uh -huh. and, and so Chromatic it was very, harmonies. very, very difficult. Um, it's not quite clear when these chorals were composed. Maybe he composed them uh, before uh, that his... Uh, um, his um, um, predecessor, his non his predecessor, uh, the person that had to play when he was in Lübeck. Oh, uh, substitute. Ah, yeah. Substitute, <laughs> great. Um, it may be that uh, the chorals have been composed before for the uh, person who uh, worked as substitute for him when mm. he was in Lübeck, but we don't know. Uh -huh. Well, such a, a distant time, right, 300 years ago or even 400 years ago, you are talking about um, so distant memories, right, but it still lives this music through your pieces that you're playing tonight, for example, right? What is your, your most inspiring piece you will be playing tonight on this program for you? Oh, I think indeed that this David Herlitz is a very uh, uh, inspiring uh, piece because it lets us show on this very far away time, on this service, on the Vespera uh, that has been 400 years ago. And it's amazing music, it's very good music. Wonderful, I, I thank you so much for this conversation. And before we finish, Matthias, I'd like to ask you um, about where our listeners can find your work online. Maybe you have a website or a link. I'm working at Greifswald University in northern Germany, and you find it uh, in on the website of our university, uh, uni-greifswald.de. 
Excellent. I will uh, put the link uh, into the description of this of this conversation. Thank you so much. You are so generous and ins insightful, and you're doing work that matters to to this uh, to these researchers, but not only to the researchers, but also to the entire organ world. I wish you so many uh, years of success in the future and. Uh, exciting musical adventures where you find not only in Visby but only in other uh, secret perhaps libraries and archives in the future. Thank, Thank you, you so you're much. Welcome. If you liked this conversation, I encourage you to visit my blog Secrets of Organ Playing at organduo.lt where you will find lots of insights, practical advice and training for every area of organ playing. You can subscribe to this blog for free to get your daily dose of inspiration and to be the first to know when any of my future podcasts roll out. I hope to help you reach your dreams in organ playing. I'm Vidas Pinkavitus. Thanks for listening and I'll catch you online really soon.